Good afternoon, Rob. How's it going, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. What are you drinking today, Rob? Oh, I'm drinking. It is a Flying Dog Pool Hoppin' Deck Beer. Hazy Summer Ale. It's a hazy IPA, correct? Yep. I happen to also be drinking the same thing. Not an IPA person, but, you know, it's uh, it's pretty refreshing. A little citrusy, you know? Very mild. Very mild. I'll give it a cool, crisp, two ballpoint pins out of five. That's pretty low. That's below average. That's because I think that it's a below average beer. Oh, well, I'm going to give it a I'll give it a 3.8 mustache strokes out of five. I think that's a fair assessment. I do think that's a fair assessment. Well, cool. Now let's uh, take this segment and roll off into Vanderbilt Part 2. To summarize from our last episode, we talked about Vanderbilt's upbringing and his Dutch heritage and also his marine exploits, being able to run his sailboats and schooners between Staten, Staten Island and New Jersey and his ferry business with his father. And to catch us back up to where we're going to start off this episode is he is now the captain and manager of Gibbons Ferry Operation. We had mentioned the court case. Now, I say the court case because for this episode, this can be the primary focus, and this is actually a landmark Supreme Court case of Gibbons versus Ogden. So, Rob, do you want to give us the reason why this case happened? Maybe explain the monopoly behind it? Sure. The Livingston family had went to the state legislature, and they pretty much granted him a monopoly, or that family a monopoly, on selling steamboats, exclusively steamboats, within the waters of New York City. If you were to go to from New Jersey to New, New York by a steamboat, you had to have a license. You couldn't operate. And you couldn't operate within the waters of New York without a license if you had a steamboat. The Livingstons had the only were granted the only um, monopoly for that um, for that operation. And what Ogden did is he he initially tried to challenge the monopoly, but he ended up kind of joining their side, and he got a license from them, purchased a license from them. Gibbons was kind of a I wouldn't say a petty man, but he he was known to go to Ogden's house and he tried to beat him up. I mean, Gibbons was kind of a, a diseased, older fellow at this time. You know, he had diabetes, a uh, gout, really bad, and he went to the went to Ogden's house and tried to beat him up just to prove a point. Gibbons thought it was a great idea to challenge him in the steamboat race, not like a little literal steamboat race, but like y- who could make the most money. You know, challenge the monopoly, and he decided he was going to, you know, have a steamboat go from i believe it was new jersey to new york and monopoly be damned okay so what i'm hearing is ogden has an exclusive right license from the livingstons to operate in certain portions of the new york sound gibbons however tries to operate in the waters further north of new jersey which means that he would be in violation of these rights which leads to a very special situation where Gibbons is a man that has money, so he, he can fight this. He charges Vanderbilt 
to run, make runs, but they're not, they're periodic. They're very sporadic. They're not set on a particular schedule, but every so often they'll venture into the waters further north to Manhattan. And also trying to undercut the, com- like the Livingston monopoly as well. Yeah. So we talked about that a little bit before about how undercutting the competition was a primary tactics tactic of, of Gibbons and Vanderbilt both. What ended up happening was they tried to enforce the monopoly. And I believe at one point Gibbons made a deal with Ogden and Gibbons kind of had like a pseudo license to help run part of Ogden's route. But after I think a year or so of doing that, Gibbons kind of got tired of it and he realized he's like, you know what, this I don't really like this. I want to be able to run the entire route and more. And this is where this the the case comes up in. Of course, Gibbons had this case brought up to the New York legislator or the the New York courts, and then they they basically shot it down, which he was ready for. And so I think they went to the was it the district. And the district also shot it down, which I think he also anticipated. I believe his main attorney was Daniel Webster, which was at the time a renowned attorney and lawyer of that era. Yeah, he was. And um, just to put a little context in this is Aaron Ogden was the former governor of, um, of New Jersey at the time. So he had some political clout. It wasn't like he was just an, another businessman competing. So some some would say he may have had an in, you know, with the Livingstons. But I mean, he like I said, he initially tried to uh, fight the the Livingston monopoly, but he's like, eh, we'll we'll join them. We'll um, make this a a profitable venture for both of them. So after they went to the night, the I think it was the I don't know what district it was, but it was a the district court. After that got uh, denied. They went to the Supreme Court. That's where this and this landmark case kind of uh, was. Uh, people didn't consider it a something that would that would actually happen an overturning of of a state law or state um, rule over monopoly, but it kind of did. The reason why this was an unheard of thing is you're talking about the early early 1800s. The country is still pretty young at this point. The federal government is very weak, and the idea was states could govern themselves, and that meant they could govern commerce. So if New York wanted to grant licenses in their own state regulating commerce based on the way the government, the federal government, state governments set up, they had the right to do this. The problem that arose, and this was the the one of the main points that they that Gibbons and Webster argued was that because these steamboats were operating between New Jersey and New York, this was not inter this was not interstate commerce. It was interstate commerce, right? And this the argument was that the Supreme Court, or sorry, the uh, the Congress has the right to kind of dictate interstate commerce. They have control over it, not the state. Yes. So precisely. They had this go to the Supreme Court, and precisely, so this went to the Supreme Court, which was kind of a given that they were going to rule against the monopoly based on 
the political affiliations of the Supreme Court justices at the time. And a, lo- a lot of this was... So the undertones of this case were, um, politically speaking, were Whigs versus the Jacksonian Democrats. The Whigs kind of held affiliation with aristocracy. High class. They thought the power should be um, centralized in a very few people. Well-educated. They came from well-educated and, uh, you know, old money kind of uh, attitude. So the Democrats, the Jacksonian Democrats at the time, they wanted a more, um, they wanted to diversify, like, the power. Kind of have the power go back to the people instead of a very few amount of um, individuals. Gibbons, but primarily Vanderbilt was a was a staunch Jacksonian Democrat. And these these political affiliations are way different than they are now. So you pretty much had the high class versus everyone else. The high class being the Whigs, the aristocracy, and everyone else below that, like upper middle to poverty. That's the way it was seen then. Going from the political atmosphere at the time where the majority opinion was against the monopoly... Vanderbilt, on the other hand, he's still young, and he isn't necessarily a top dog yet. He is still running his ferry business at this time. He's also captaining the premier steamship for Gibbons in his steamship ferrying and trade. Gibbons, so as we talked about before, was somewhat of a petty man. He wanted to see Ogden lose just a fundamental loss he didn't I don't know if Gibbons really cared about the case as much as he did bleeding Ogden dry and that's pretty much what happened meanwhile Vanderbilt also had brought a case forth afterwards after the initial beginning of the Ogden versus Gibbons of course being Vanderbilt was after this initial case, once the initial case was decided decided by the Supreme Court, Vanderbilt's case was seen as a null case and it was a mute point. So they didn't actually argue that. I mentioned that because last episode we talked about how this court case had two significant factors and it didn't necessarily deal with Vanderbilt directly. So the case first dealt with monopolies given out in the form of exclusive rights and licenses from the state to do whatever commerce that may be. This time it is steamboat navigation. To bring up the steamboat navigation, we also have to say that this didn't encompass sailing vessels. This was primarily steam vessels. That's because steamboats were a fairly new invention. Where that monopoly came from was the people who instituted the first steamboat, which I believe came from the Livingston and Fulton families, and that is how they ended up with this monopoly. Going on further from there, something that would be good to interject here before we tell you the final decision of the Supreme Court case is What they did to try to prevent Gibbons and primarily Vanderbilt, since he was the one captaining the ships and his subordinates, what did they have to do to keep from getting arrested for breaking the monopoly? I know that Vanderbilt, when he would make his treks, he would oftentimes dip below deck. And when the port officer would come to, like, give him a citation, arrest him, he wouldn't be there. And they'd be like, I don't know where he is, you know. 
or they would try to like set like set sail as quickly as possible, like turn around, just so they the port officer couldn't do anything because they were they were charging quite a bit of uh, money and time. I believe like they would try to arrest him for the day. I believe that they would also try. They would dock the boat and they wouldn't be able to leave. I think that they, they. I don't believe at the beginning it was a very serious ordeal. Like you said, it was like a citation. It be, it came to the point where they actually built a secret closet type space below deck where Vanderbilt would hide when the port officers would come on board, so they wouldn't be able to find him. And he was very good at hiding. I think he also enjoyed the the going against the grain against these people. Eventually, though, he did get caught. But when you read the account of it, it almost seems as if Vanderbilt allowed himself to get caught. Right. And oftentimes when they would, when they would give citations out, it wasn't just like a ticket. They would actually take him in and it would, you know, they were trying to make him waste a lot of time. But uh, he did like the chase. All the accounts I've read, he did enjoy kind of the cat and mouse aspect of it. The port officers really, they didn't arrest the crew because he was the captain, but he would just kind of sneak around. It seemed a little catty to me. It's pretty funny. It is kind of humorous thinking about how he would come, you know, he comes into port, tries to get everyone off as quickly as possible. And a lot of times they would try to load people on as quickly as possible for the return journey. Oh, right. Now this goes into a whole nother aspect, but they would often race each other across the, uh, the path they would make from New Jersey to New York. Are you talking about the other steamboat, like ferrying companies? Yeah, like it wasn't a, a friendly race. It was, it was a pretty uh, intense race. Like they would try to, they would try to get their um, boilers up to pressure really quickly. They would often hold down the safety, the safety switches on the safety valves on some of them, so they could run higher pressure, which would give, not to make a pun here, but give Vanderbilt a uh, fuel to the fire of saying, you know, we run a better steamship because we're running low pressure boilers because there was a fire that killed a few people again you know when you're trying to compete with somebody and the newspapers are reporting on this brand new invention called a steamship and one explodes you're like no we're just safe you know you can kind of get more customers and you're reducing the fares because you don't care like gibbons did not care as much about profits as he did ruining ogden that is true vanderbilt i think also found this as a way to learn the steamboat business, and he was very, that's something that we haven't talked much about, but he, he was very good at spying the next big thing. He had a particular eye for it. We'll talk about that in the next episode of Vanderbilt. Before we go off more into the steamship operation, specifically with the technology, the Supreme Court case, as we mentioned before, is being heard, and this was, this took years before it finally was argued in court and they made a decision. It was a 7-0 decision against the monopoly. Opinion was that the federal government had the power to regulate interstate commerce. So this meant that the monopoly could not exist, which prevented New Jersey-based companies, or I would assume even New York-based companies, that were steamboats traveling between New York City and New Jersey, they could no longer exclusively hold those rights. Right. This is a big deal because, like Rob had mentioned earlier, this was the first major Supreme Court case where the federal government had basically established that navigation and the trading of commodities 
was regula- regulated by the federal government when it came to between states. If you want to split hairs here, this was the argument that Ogden made that supplies were regulated by Congress because it's trade. But people, transporting people, were not. That was the argument that the Livingston-Ogden side brought up. So if you want to say trade is only by commodity, product, not people, they may have a leg to stand on. But the Supreme Court ultimately decided that business is trade. And they were doing business as transporting people across the, um, that, you know, from New Jersey to New York. That counted as interstate commerce. One thing it did not do, however, was solve the problem of New York's monopoly that Ogden Livingston held between New York City and mainland New York. That was not as much of a deal for Gibbons. What you ended up seeing was Gibbons got his revenge. Ogden was bled dry. He ended up dying destitute. He died after Gibbons. So Gibbons, at this point, by the, close to the end of the Supreme Court case, unbeknownst to him, only had about two years left to his life. And he was, like Rob had mentioned, a very sickly fellow at this point. And so his son was overseeing the majority of his steamboat operations. Vanderbilt was taking care of the day-to-day operations and captaining. You know, this this court case, Ogden v. Gibbons or Gibbons v. Ogden, it lasted 10 years. So this is a long court case, long, drawn-out court case. This is why... Gibbons kind of, he didn't lose interest, but at the end of it, he was like, okay, we won, I'm done. This is also why Vanderbilt's cat and mouse game became such a popular pastime for people on the docks trying to see whether Vanderbilt would get caught or not. I think this is a good time for us to take a break real quick, and we're going to go grab another beer, and we'll be back with you shortly. I wanted to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. I hope that you are enjoying it. I would like to ask if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere you listen, and let us know what you think of the show and maybe any future topics or people that you would like us to cover here. Also, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at pmindspod, where you'll also get a visual representation, not just the audio of what we talk about here. Now back to the show. Bringing us back. Okay, so we have just finished the conversation about the Supreme Court case. Shortly after the court case was decided, Gibbons got to see his nemesis of Ogden ruined. Effectively, Gibbons had won not just the court case, but his own personal triumph as well. And he died a little bit afterwards, leaving his son to take care of all of his various different businesses one of those being the steamboat operations in new jersey new york now vanderbilt is now having to deal with gibbons's son how do you think that's going to work out because vanderbilt was really loyal to gibbons like weirdly loyal so it is very odd that he had this sense of loyalty especially whenever he wasn't one of the type of people that you would think would live by that kind of uh i wouldn't say moral code or ethical code but like a a code in general. He he was a he was a roughneck person. Like he didn't care what other people thought, and he kind of took pride in the fact that other people thought less of him because, especially whenever he became like the richest person in the U.S., no one you know he didn't care. He maintained that dock 
attitude, you know, raised on the shores was, of, of New York, you know. He was a Commodore. As he was now called in all the newspapers as well. So that's kind of one thing that's weird about um, their relationship is Vanderbilt was kind of a entrepreneur in his, in his day, right? Going back to the previous episodes, he wanted to start his own fairing business. And he reluctantly took the position that Gibbons offered. So why was he so beholden to him for, I mean, you know, 10, 12 years, however long this was? So there's one thing that, so Vanderbilt never really had a mentor. And I think Gibbons was somewhat a pseudo mentor for him. And because of that, he kind of saw it as a, as a way of like, you know, he's the one who helped me learn more on the business side of things, right? Like he, he ran and operated his own ferry business, started out with his dad and his parents. But eventually he needed to learn if he was going to grow, he needed to learn how to run that. And so Williams, which is Gibbons son was running it. He wasn't as interested, I don't believe. And this kind of led to some disagreements between William and Vanderbilt. Yeah, given that Vanderbilt did not have the um, loyalty that he had with his with uh, with Gibbons, you know, um, it kind of is telling in his personality that you know I'm loyal to Gibbons, but his son is not is not him. So I can see I can see his train of thought. Like I dealt with this guy who I think is a good businessman, but you you're just kind of inheriting what he had. Yeah, so around this time, Gibbons had changed the name of his fairing business and stagecoach operation to the Union Line. And they used this to travel between New York and New Brunswick, as well as Philadelphia. So this was kind of like what happened with Ogden, but in a different scenario, not so much the monopoly, but the competition side of it and driving rates down there started kind of a racing of steamboats, as we had foreshadowed before. This wasn't a race necessarily like a uh, entertainment endurance race. This was a race to show who was faster, who was quicker and who was better for the money. And as we have already mentioned as well, this turned deadly many times and the reason why is they would shut down the safety valve which would overpressurize the boiler which would produce a lot more steam but given the materials and, and the rating of the boilers they could not hold up and you'd have a failure and sometimes that failure was the boiler exploding and you kind of have to think like at this time they're experimenting with higher pressures too in these boiler systems so you're running at a higher pressure your your vessel's not gonna be able to hold. I mean, you know, if you hold it down, your your valve, your safety valve, you're not gonna be able to um, overcome that fa that factor of safety. Um, it's gonna overcome that much quicker. Exactly. So to give you a specific instance of this, the Union Line, which was the Gibbons Line that Vanderbilt was running, was competing with a different company that had named their line the Exchange Line. And they had a premiership that they named the Legislator, which was a fast, well, for the time, was a fast steamboat. And they pitted it against Vanderbilt's Thistle. And in one such case, as previously mentioned, June 2nd, 
1825, an engineer aboard the legislator fastened down a safety valve on the ship's boiler, thus to keep steam from escaping and so ramp up the RPM of the steam engine's flywheel. The boat was still tied up at the foot of Rector Street in Manhattan when her boiler exploded. Four members of the crew were scalded to death, three more injured. A short while later, the repaired legislator returned to the water, offering nervous passengers transport on a quote-unquote safety barge towed behind the main craft, such safety to be had for a moderate step-up fare. This offer... Like the boiler with the closed valve, Sue went bust as when, as even more passengers migrated to the Union line from which it appeared all the safety and efficiency in the world could be had for pennies. So this is a classic version of exactly what we talked about. And I quoted that from the biography uh, Commodore by Edward Renehan uh, Jr., and I think that gives you a very simple snapshot of what was going on back then. Now, do you think Vanderbilt's engineers were doing the same thing? They're probably doing the same thing. I believe that they were, and they probably got lucky. Also, this is worth mentioning, they were still using wood primarily before, like early on they were using wood and they slowly transitioned to coal whenever they realized that coal was better you know bigger bang for your buck and it didn't consume as much wood also during that similar time period of transferring over to coal for steam steam boilers was Vanderbilt one of Vanderbilt's uh, shipbuilders had an engineer that designed a steam engine that could or a boiler more or less that could consume less fuel on a trip and still maintain the speeds so maybe he had more modernized technology compared to other people or in this specific case, but I guarantee that they were doing the same thing. I'm pretty sure there's other instances you could probably find in, in record books where they did the same thing. I think this would is a good precursor to what we're going to talk about in the next episode when it comes to Vanderbilt's learning of business past the steamboats and more about his personal life you know how's he doing at home where does he go from now that gibbons is dead where does he go from there and we see that steam power is not necessarily all it's cracked up to be when people abuse it rob you got any final words for this episode yeah so just um just having your mind for the next episode the vanderbilt's personality we've kind of talked about the gibbons v ogden case this episode, but we really want to crack into who Vanderbilt is as a person, especially as an adult, what's going on, how many kids he's going to have. That's a pretty interesting number. Um, so the next episode may be a little more informal and a little more discussional, but just look forward to that. Okay, well, I believe this has been this Vanderbilt Part 2 on prestigious minds.